0: Hello once again, everybody, and welcome to New Books in the American West, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Stephen Hausman, and I'll be your host for today's interview. I'm very excited today to welcome Andrew M. Bush to the podcast. Dr. Bush is an assistant professor of interdisciplinary studies in the Honors College at Coastal Carolina University, and is the author of City in a Garden, Environmental Transformations and Racial Justice in 20th Century Austin, Texas, which came out last year with the University of North Carolina Press, and which we'll be discussing today. Andrew, welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Thanks a lot, Steve. I'm really uh, excited to be here to discuss uh, my book.
0: Before we get into the book, why don't you first tell us a bit about yourself? What path did you take to the world of history, and what is your background as a historian?
1: So it's kind of interesting. My path uh, actually starts off in India. Um, I was uh, very interested in Eastern religions when I was in college, and I I got a fellowship to go to, uh, to India, Um, the summer after I graduated to do some research with a professor. I was there for a few months, and I came back, um, and I sort of had worse culture shock maybe coming back to the United States, which I had never really left before, uh, than I had actually going uh, to India. And I sort of decided, wow, this is such an interesting place. Um, I kind of saw it as as being big and wealthy and in these kind of ways that I hadn't really examined before. Uh, And so I kind of changed my focus from... Uh, the East and from India in particular to the United States. I wound up, uh, working in a warehouse for a few years after that, and then I went back to graduate school, uh, to get my master's and then PhD, um, in American studies. So my background is in history and also in, uh, American studies, which is the way I look at American studies is kind of an interdisciplinary view, uh, on history that sort of takes the United States and its relationships with, uh, global neighbors as its kind of, uh, focus. Um, so that's kind of, that's pretty much my background. Um, I've been teaching now for about ten years, uh, mostly history classes. But as you can probably tell by my title, also um, uh, interdisciplinary studies. So I and I, I hope that that this came across in my book as well. But I kind of I use a historical methodology, but I sort of pull from anthropology a little bit, geography a little bit, uh, sociology a little bit uh, when I when I sort of conceive my uh, my projects.
0: Yes, that does come across very strongly in your book, in fact. And um, that's an interesting path that you took. And I, I got to ask, we might kind of circle back on this question again later, but would you ever be interested in going back to kind of your your scholarly roots and doing some work and research on uh, on Central and South Asia at all?
1: Oh, yeah, I, I, I would. Um, one of the things that sort of deterred me when I was actually in India was how difficult it was to get things there, to get sort of things accomplished. So I would take, you know, I was in Calcutta and I would take, it would take me an hour and a half to get from where I was staying uh, to the central library that was there. And then you'd get there and you'd order these books and you'd fill out call slips for all the books. They wouldn't let you into the stacks. And then, um, you know, they'd, you'd order six books and they'd come back with two and say the other ones are too brittle or you can't look at them. So I was a little bit discouraged, I think, as a you know 22-year-old fresh out of undergrad hmm. um, with that kind of process. But looking back at now, I think that that would be something that I would really uh, enjoy doing, looking at, uh, looking at other aspects of the world. And actually, in, in kind of a roundabout way, um, living in Calcutta for a few months got me really interested in urban studies as well, because um, that's such a vibrant city, but also one with so many uh, social and kind of infrastructural problems, as many cities in the developing world have.
0: Well, that's a good lead into my next question, which is what got you interested in the the topic of the book in question of of the intersection of race and the environment in Austin, Texas, specifically?
1: Sure. So as I said before, I got my Ph.D. uh, in Austin. I actually went there. I actually wrote my master's thesis on sports. I was going to do sports. Uh, history is my sort of focus. And when I got to Austin, I immediately was kind of uh, interested in uh, the city for a few different reasons. One, um, I grew up in Chicago and spent most of my life in the in the Midwest and around Chicago. And Austin is just such a different type of city, so much less urban, uh, I think, in its physical form uh, than Chicago is, and sort of in its social and economic uh, history as well. Right? So when I got to Austin, um, there were two things that I kind of noticed. One was just how popular the city was in people's imagination. Everybody who was there seemed to love it, and there was just this great vibe about it, much different from many other uh, cities that I had sort of thought about. Um, and as I sort of began investigating it, I began to uncover uh, these, these really long standing kind of racial uh, fissures. The city was just starting to kind of gentrify when I got there. And I started to, I, I saw that process taking place firsthand. Uh, I did a little bit of digging and noticed that uh, the, the African American population of Austin has been declining um, in terms of percentage for a long time and really consistently uh, as well. It's one of the, got one of the lowest percentages of African American residents of any major city uh, in the United States. So my focus initially was kind of on that, this disjunct between the way that so many people love this city and the reasons why they love the city. Uh, and this disparity in terms of um, of race, the environmental uh, portion didn't really come in until probably I was pretty close to finishing my dissertation. My dissertation was called Entrepreneurial City, and it was much more about the kind of economic, the political economic growth of the city, focusing on the university. Um And the tech industry, which you know some of that is in the book as well, but I sort of realized like, oh, this story needs uh and Austin is such a kind of environment, also an environmentally friendly city, something that makes it uh so livable and something that a lot of people really resonates with a lot of people on uh, residents in Austin and did at the time, and so I said, what would happen if I injected uh environment into this and 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 put an environmental perspective against that kind of race perspective, and it wound up for for me anyways. Uh, I think telling the, the history of the city in as, in as accurate a way as possible, right? Because these two forces, um, which have really been at work in the city for a long time, that of uh, racial tensions and environmental improvements, um, that wound up being what I think is the, the best way to kind of tell the whole story um, of, uh, of Austin, because these, these two aspects are so prominent to the city's history, and I would argue today as well.
0: Well, let's talk about Austin then, as as a place. What is the city's environment and natural geography like? And why did people decide to choose Austin as a city site? Why did people decide to live there in the first place? And, and what's the setting like?
1: So Austin's really interesting. Most cities have some kind of like natural advantage. Right? New York is the perfect harbor, perfect natural harbor. Uh, Philadelphia is at a, as at a waterway, um, basically the shortest portage between the Delaware and the Schuylkill River. New Orleans, of course, is at the mouth of the Mississippi. Most cities have a kind of natural reason for being there. Um, as best I can tell, Uh, Austin is only there because the founders of Texas, uh, because uh, Stephen F. Austin basically said, this is a beautiful place. Uh, He wanted to get away from Houston, which was the capital of Texas at the time, to try to find a new capital, and he said, I found a beautiful place. It was a place that they initially called Waterloo, and the name has changed to Austin a few years uh, after that. And in their descriptions, they characterize it as sort of an Eden, it's beautiful, it's it's lush, there's... there's a lot of different foliage growing. Of course, there's the river there, so a constant supply uh, of water. Um, and it is really a beautiful place from a natural perspective. Uh, the famous landscape architect um, Frederick Olmsted actually uh, cut his teeth kind of as a writer. He wrote this book um, called – it was actually a series of sort of dispatches um, that it, called The Cotton Kingdom. He took a ride through the American South in the 1850s, um, a little bit before the Civil War – and it's a w it's a wonderful kind of documentation of what the South was like from the perspective of this young New Yorker uh at the time. And when he gets to Austin, he says this is where you trans this is where you go from East Texas to West Texas, right? And he was right about that, um, from uh from many different perspectives. So to the east of Austin is kind of what they call Blackland Prairie. Uh, sort of rolling hills, uh, typical farmland, kind of similar to much of uh, the deep south. Right, and then right when you get to the west of Austin, you can actually see this. The, what they call it, the Western Hills. Just to the west of downtown Austin, you start getting you start getting the hills. This is something called the Balcones Escarpment. Right, this kind of uplift uh, in in the territory land. It's, it becomes much more rocky, more hilly. Um, it's colloquially known as the Hill Country. This area to the west of Austin. Uh, and there it also gets uh, much drier, right? So Austin is very split uh, between what we might consider like a southern um, landscape and a western landscape as you get to uh, the west. And that's one reason uh, also why it's, it has such bad um, or it can have such bad uh, weather conditions. You probably want me to, to get to that a little bit later. Um, so essentially, people moved there because it was this, be- because it was this beautiful place. And then the city also had the state government and uh, the university, which were able to attract a lot of sort of a built-in population for the people to run those entities. Obviously, it was the state capital um, just about from the very beginning of Texas in the 1840s, and then the university was located there in 1883. So those were two reasons, and they, they they used this idea of climate and beauty and environment to kind of sell the city in its early days.
0: And very early in the book, you point to the year of 1893 as a pivotal year for Austin. Why was that such an important point in the city's history?
1: Yeah, so I think I actually opened, I I, I actually remember that because that's probably the first, I think that's the first line I wrote in my dissertation actually many years ago, which became the book how 1893 was a uh, pivotal year um, for Austin. The reason for that is because that's the year that the first Austin Dam was completed. So um, when uh, Stephen F. Austin and his crew got there, Um, The argument I make is they probably got there in in one of these really nice years where there was some rain, uh, but not too much rain. And so they saw Austin as being this beautiful place where in many years, Austin was subject to... Uh, very, very extreme weather conditions. So in central Texas, I think Austin gets about 32 inches of rain a year on average, but it rarely gets 32 inches of rain. That's an average between somewhere in the neighborhood of 60 inches of rain and like 10 inches of rain. Um, so it has a lot of extremes and, and in general, it go, it's gone through these drought flood cycles. Right, so there'll be a drought for six or seven years, and then torrential rains the next year, and it'll flood, and and uh, it's all full of water. Um, this was not a very good sort of model for growth because you know either you don't have water, or you you have very limited amount of water, uh, or you have too much water and floods. And so the city was flooded out and lost millions of dollars in property, and many many uh, dozens and probably hundreds of people killed in the first forty years. And alternatively, in the years when it didn't rain, there were water shortages. Uh, all the time. Right. So it's really hard to sell your city f- to industry uh, and even just to other people who want to move in um, if you have this kind of lack of stability. Right. And so the what the, 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 the system, which is called the Colorado River uh, system, um, the, the big thing in the 1880s, right, the, they get the university uh, there and the, the sort of city leaders. Um, become very interested in in this dam and creating it in in building a dam because they think that's going to be really good for the long term pros economic prospects of the city, and they they fund the dam. Um, I think it was 1891. Uh, the the bond issue passed and they funded the dam completely uh, publicly. Um, it was a it was a, a very modern um, kind of state of the art dam at the time. What's called a gravity dam today looks very a uh, basic, just uh, basically like a 12-foot um, brick wall that went all the way across the dam and basically um, encased a, a reservoir that they called Lake McDonald. Um, and when that dam was finished in 1893, they think, and as far as I can tell, uh, it was the largest dam of its kind in the world. It was reported on by Harper's and by Scientific American and a number of other Uh, important publications at that time. And it was this sort of civic, um, it it was, it was a, it was a symbol of Austin's civic value, the way that the citizens, uh, valued the city. Um, and so this was a a great thing for them. It actually created power. There was a a generator attached to it. It created power. It created jobs. It created leisure opportunities. There was a steamer, uh, that the city operated on that little lake behind it, uh, Lake McDowell. Um, I think it was called the Ben Hur. Um, And so it creates all these opportunities. Austin grows a little bit uh, in the 1890s. And then all of a sudden, uh, tragedy strikes, basically, in the year 1900. As it turns out, um, it's very difficult to anchor this dam to the limestone bottom uh, of the riverbed. And they did the best job that they could in 1893, but it really wasn't enough. Limestone is very difficult to, to, uh, to build something into and to really secure it. So people start noticing that. Like fishing lines are going underneath the dam, uh, and they start realizing, well, the dam is probably kind of separating a little bit from uh, its foundation in the bottom of the river. And um, at, in the year 1900, I think it was April of 1900, um, you know, a bunch of people it rained a bunch upstream. This must have been a crazy, crazy scene. I was a bright, sunny day, not a cloud in the sky, and the water levels just rising and rising and rising because there had been so much rain upstream, northwest of Austin, where the, uh, where the watershed of the Colorado is. And all of a sudden, boom, there's probably 200 people actually there watching the water come over the dam. They described it as being beautiful, uh, kind of thing. And the dam just breaks. About a 200 foot section right in the middle of the dam just breaks apart from the rest of the dam, gets pushed a few hundred feet downriver. This wall of water comes in, uh, and destroys the powerhouse, the power generating station, which is just uh, downriver from the dam. I think 17 people were killed and many millions of worth of property were lost. Um, so that dam, uh, then becomes this kind of symbol of, uh, you know, Austin's failures. It's reported on as a failure widely. This was very much national news at the time. Scientific American, again, writing about that. Um, there was a uh, an article I think in one of the uh, San Antonio papers. It's called "Death and Ruin at Austin" the day after it uh, the day after it happened. So, and it wasn't until a lot later that um, that the federal government actually helped to fund a series of dams that still now stands on uh, the Colorado River um, northwest of Austin, basically. And I think it's seven to- seven dams in total uh, that impound um, seven reservoirs, and they really. Uh, they really allow for Austin to have, one, power, uh, two, recreational opportunities, and three, certainly, uh, stability um, uh, after that. So it wasn't really until the 1930s, though, that, that that was accomplished. So it was a long, a 40-year saga, basically.
0: And flooding remains an issue in early Austin as well. And as as you describe in the book, the, the floods, to a certain extent, also helped to reveal Austin's racial geography in the early 20th century as well. So can you tell us a bit about Austin's racial geography in these early days, and in particular how white Austinites uh, attempted to keep minority populations out of certain parts of the expanding city?
1: Certainly. So Austin's, like much of the South, there wasn't this kind of rigid segregation that we might expect in, in Austin or in many southern cities at the same time. This, uh, I think, and, and many people have written about this, is kind of a leftover from the days of slavery when, of course, blacks and whites live very, very close to one another. So this is also uh, an outcome of the labor market in Austin because uh, most African-Americans worked as they either worked in kind of the, the, the uh, industrial kind of blue-collar jobs at slaughterhouses, some of the, the worst of those types of jobs, uh, or the majority of them, and particularly women, were domestics right? So they certainly couldn't afford uh, automobiles, public transportation wasn't great. So in general, um, African Americans had to live within a walking distance of white neighborhoods because that's usually where uh, they were employed and they had nowhere else to get there, right? And the city wasn't super populated at the time. It only had around 25,000 people uh, at the turn of the century. So not a really, really big uh, city. What winds up happening is is that... um, they wind up living in African-Americans in kind of there. There are some, but not a whole lot of uh, Latin Americans, the vast majority of them, Mexican Americans uh, living there at the time. They wind up living in cheaper areas. And those cheaper areas tend to be in areas that are for uh, a few different reasons, uh, much more hazardous, right? So Austin also has two urban creeks, Waller Creek uh, and Shoal Creek. And those Waller is on kind of the east side of downtown. Shoal, Shoal is on the west side of downtown. They both uh start they both their heads are both up north and they come down and filter into the Colorado River kind of on each side of downtown. Right? And those were unimproved just like the um just like the river was in the early part of the twentieth century and they flooded out a great deal. Right. So their land was also uh very cheap there. In some cases it was it was free there because of how dangerous it was. And so for African Americans and Uh, Latinos, they tended to live in, in these places that were lower, that were more, uh, susceptible to flooding and also within walking distance of the place where they lived. Now, I think, I I think a lot of what kept them out of white, of those sort of white areas was, was economics. They, uh, you know, weren't educated. They didn't have the opportunity to become educated, uh, very well. And Austin, uh, was not a city that had a great deal of, uh, uh of, of low skill or mid skill industrial jobs the way that a Chicago would have at the time or a Detroit. Uh so there just weren't many opportunities for uh African Americans from an economic perspective and uh, and Austin from a, a white perspective was quite a middle class city because so much of its population uh worked at the university and in government. So these jobs that, that that paid pretty well for the time and that necessitated uh uh some education uh for the most part. Um so they also have these things called restrictive covenants, right, which were legal in the United States through the 1940s. And we still have restrictive covenants. Many people who purchase a house, they'll sign a restrictive covenant and says basically, I have to keep my yard in some kind of order. I can't paint my house uh, bright pink. These restrictions, basically, on your property that are still quite commonplace today. Um, before the nineteen forties it was commonplace and almost ubiquitous in many cities and, and suburban locations uh to include a racial covenant in there to say that you cannot sell your house to uh African Americans or to other uh groups that were seen by those whites as not being welcome uh in those places. Um I'll give a little plug here. Uh my old colleague uh Elliot Tredder has written a wonderful book. Uh, on that very topic called Austin Restricted, where he kind of maps out what uh, racial covenants were like in the 1930s and 1940s uh, in Austin. Uh, he does a wonderful job with that. And so that's essentially what the, what uh, Austin's geography was. It was not segre- It was not sort of segregated in the way that we think today, where there was a large, you know, where there'd be a large African-American neighborhood in one part of the city and a large white neighbor in the other part of the city. It was rather pockets. But those pockets were divine, uh, defined principally by uh relationship to or proximity to i should say um environmental hazards and there were also some man made hazards so i wasn't able to tell which came first but there were at least two neighborhoods at least two african american neighborhoods and one latino neighborhood that had a garbage dump uh in them place where garbage was dumped um it could be that that the land was so cheap that it attracted uh poorer people uh, but it also could be that that um that that, that was just a convenient place for uh, the dumping to take place, and really nobody cared enough about the uh, African American communities to not dump um, uh, trash in their neighborhood. So, what you wind up getting from this is really strong health disparities in those first uh, uh, racial health disparities in those first couple uh, decades of the 20th century, where African Americans had much higher rates of almost any kind of uh, disease, from tuberculosis to uh, typhoid to just about just about everything. Um, and in some cases, five, seven you know, times uh, as high rates of some of these very bad diseases.
0: One of my big takeaways from the book is that like a lot of cities in the, the kind of broader southwestern region of the United States, Austin is a city that is defined in a lot of ways by water. But what makes it kind of different compared to a city as like, say, uh, Phoenix, for instance, Uh, A city like Phoenix will have too little water, whereas Austin never really has that problem. And water, in a lot of ways, as you describe in the book, becomes central to the city's history and to the city's identity. Um, Could you talk about that a little bit and specifically about the importance, particularly in the post-war period, of the Austin Aqua Festival?
1: Yeah, sure. So my argument is that um, sort of in that first period that we just got done discussing, that nature and water in particular is sort of something that Austinites fight against, that they try to overcome that they use technology to uh try to kind of harness and this is what the this is kind of what the dam means and what urban planning means for us and they wind up harnessing uh the river, start of putting it to work for the people as Lyndon Johnson always liked to say. And then in the era after they were able to do that, they start selling the city in terms of water because of course, as you said, the Southwest is a is a pretty arid place so Austin all of a sudden they Austin city leaders were all were always much sort of more willing than most other uh municipal governments in Texas to use the federal government and take advantage of those federal resources Tom Miller who was the mayor uh in the 30s and again in the and, and again in the 50s was a big new dealer of course Lyndon Johnson cut his teeth uh, as a new dealer and kind of hitched his wagon to uh FDR uh very early on in his political career and so they were able to take advantage of that, and they have these dams, and all of a sudden, right after World War II, uh, they have all this water. As you were saying, as you were saying, they have a surplus of water and a surplus of energy. They actually begin selling those resources to other communities uh, around Texas who don't have uh, those kind of things. So Austin, of course, <clears throat> is looking to grow now, right? The whole idea of having these dams and to control water and have these new resources, was to be able to grow, and the way that they think about growing is really uh, unique. I think it's this kind of kind of three prong thing where they they see what's happening in some cities in the 1950s, and they say we don't really want industry here or traditional industry. Um, traditional industry attracts uh, you know people who don't have uh, sk- people who don't have skills, people we just don't necessarily um, want to attract right here so how do we do how do we do that <clears throat> right we create this identity for our city that's based around white collar labor and we also have this the advantage of having water and having a nice uh natural environment right so it's perfect for this kind of suburban um landscape that develops there and the, the idea is is that you can have uh white collar workers who are working in these new tech industries or maybe with the government or or at the university uh, and they can take advantage of the area's beautiful beautiful natural opportunities and then plenty of uh, water, right? And so water becomes very central to their kind of cultural, uh, to the city's cultural identity. And this is demonstrated best in something called uh, Austin Aqua Festival, which is initiated in um, 1961. And Aqua Fest is, it's colloquially called um, the forerunner to what's today South by Southwest in Austin, the, the, the film and music uh, kind of festival. It was this week long or maybe two week long, something like that. It changed every year. Uh, festival that usually took place in the middle of the summer when business was down. Um, and it was one, a celebration of water, right? The city's water resources were sort of put on, put on, uh, put up on a showcase for, uh, people from around the region. Uh, to see, they had, they usually would have like a, they parades, but they'd also have a parade down, uh, the Colorado River it was called Town Lake, the impounded part of the Colorado River adjacent to, uh, downtown Austin. Um, there would be all sorts of other water activities. There was usually like this big canoe race, uh, there was, there was teams of canoers coming all the way down the 60 mile stretch of, uh, the Colorado River, um, and then finishing up in Austin, there was all there were sorts of fishing tournaments and things like this. There were, um, beauty pageants and uh, some, some of these great sort of period pieces where, you know, there's a, the winner of the beauty pageant is in this classic, uh, old, uh, Chevrolet convertible. And they put the convertible out there and the, kind of in the middle of the lake. I'm not sure how they did that, um, you know, technologically, but it's kind of just to showcase Austin's, uh, Austin's water. And they mix it into with other aspects of Austin's culture. So, um, they try to showcase kind of Austin's very diverse heritage by having different, uh, nights that, you know, they have like Polish night and Czechoslovakian night and, um, and Chicano night, uh, that they had to showcase. Um, Austin's kind of history of ethnic diversity. They'd have a lot of music. Uh, that's kind of how it uh, evolved a little bit into South by Southwest. Um, you know, they they had one one of the big years. They had uh, Adam West come, who played Batman, and he was kind of like the, the leader of the big parade on the on the penultimate day. Uh, of the um, Aquafest. So Aquafest is this kind of way that the city showcases itself and its resources and creates a new um, kind of center of its own cultural uh,
0: heritage. And Aquafest is also, as you describe in the book, not free from the city's pretty stark racial geography either. Um, So how did this festival both reveal and reinforce uh, social and racial hierarchies in Austin?
1: Yeah, so th- this didn't really happen until the nineteen seventies, or I guess it happened, but it didn't become uh, really uh, discussed until the nineteen seventies when you start seeing this this uh, more Chicano movement uh, emerge uh, on Austin's east side. So, um, as I talked about before, I guess this would be a good place to talk about new uh, g- the new kind of racial geography of Austin that Austin was very pocketed um, in terms of its different uh, populations. That changes after nineteen twenty eight. Um in 1928 the or the, the city comes up with its first urban plan. And this is in the wake of some of the some of the um uh, upheavals of the late uh 19-teens. So After World War 1, um many African Americans during World War 1 moved to cities uh from rural areas because of course production's increased during wars and because a lot of the white uh people were off fighting in World War 1. And so when the war is over, one there's this really bad um, economic downturn right after World War One, And two, all of these white people are returning now to cities that are packed with people and rubbing up against African Americans in ways that they hadn't before. And in 1919, uh, a number of race riots break out all over the country. The biggest one, probably the worst one, was in Chicago. Um, and there were a few of them in Texas. And what this did was it really put, uh, mixed in with the New Negro movements of the 1920s, which was sort of an assertion among African Americans for more uh, autonomy and for more uh, independence and rights. It was centered in New York, but also was, you know, c- kind of spilled out to uh, other places. This kind of scared a lot of city leaders. And they said, we need to rethink kind of the way that we uh, operate from a geographic perspective in our race relations uh, broadly. So what they did was it was illegal to, to zone areas uh, racially. So you can't. Um, you couldn't say that, that African Americans have to live in this area, like legally, and whites can live in this area legally. Uh, so the way that the uh, Austin City Plan gets around that is they basically say what we can do is we can deliver uh, separate but equal services, right? So this is the era of Jim Crow. Separate but equal services. And so what they do is they move the, the, the African American school. Uh, onto what was called the east side, today east of, uh, Interstate 35, um, between about 5th and, and 12th streets, kind of right in there. They moved the African American Park over there. They built an African American Park over there. They moved the African-American schools, the African-American libraries, all the kind of public institutions uh, in in separate but equal for African-Americans. They moved them over there. And so by the 1940s and certainly by the 1950s, you have this brand new uh, kind of racial geography. Right, that, that's there, and there's this stark difference in Latino, most Latinos and almost all African Americans live east of, I, of what becomes I-35 in 1962, or before that was East Avenue, uh, and and most and most uh, white off nights live west of East Austin now. South of the river, it was a little different, a little bit more uh, integrated, um, but that was still kind of far away at the time uh, in the 1950s from. Uh, central Austin, right? so you have this these stark racial geographies, and what winds up happening with aquafest uh, is is that a lot of the kind of dirty um parts of aquafest and the the more uh, the, what we might call the annoyances of aquafest um were situated in the part of the river that was adjacent to the La- the mexican american neighborhood um east of what's the i thirty five or in nineteen seventy seventy two seventy three 73 uh, was i thirty five and what happens is they they basically put the the big thing that set everybody off was the speedboat races. So again, another way to kind of enjoy water is these speedboat races. Um, but they put the speedboat races adjacent to the Mexican the Mexican American neighborhoods. And of course, speedboat races are loud, they're dirty, um the smell of gas, uh, and it's uh, and a lot of the residents kind of complained uh, of you know, spectators coming in, urinating in their yards, just treating the treating the neighborhood uh, disrespectfully. And the group of um, uh, Latinos that kind of uh, stood up uh, for this basically said, "Listen, we don't. We want these boat races to take place somewhere else. This is a clear example of how you guys don't care about how the city doesn't care about our neighborhoods or about the people that live here because you put probably the worst aspect." Uh, of the festival, or the the one that's the least conducive to to, uh, to having a uh, livable neighborhood, you put that right in our neighborhood, and then the the things that aren't conducive, um, or the things that aren't uh, quite as uh, upsetting, are in other parts of the city. Uh, so I think the, uh, that Aquafest, in, in a sense, certainly demonstrates these kind of um, uh, racial differences uh, geographically, and it also becomes a, a sort of place where. Um, the uh, Latino uh, heritage and pride movements were, uh, you know, they, they could they sort of um, cut their teeth on that.
0: Earlier, you mentioned the importance of the University of Texas and of the state government's location in Austin. And even though we're kind of jumping around a bit chronologically here, I'm wondering if you could tell us sure. a bit more about the importance of these institutions in how the city positioned itself, particularly after World War II, as is as described in the book, As a city with industry without smokestacks, and then how all of this kind of goes on to reify the sorts of environmental racism that you've been talking about throughout the city's history as well.
1: Yeah, so industry without smokestacks is one of my favorite phrases from from the book. (laughs) Um, Yeah, and and this is—I took this directly from the Chamber of Commerce in the 1950s. This is this is exactly what they say. Uh, that they want. And what they mean by that is, I think I mentioned this a little bit earlier, but as they uh, come out of World War II, they say, listen, we got to figure this out. Um, Our agricultural economy is waning, as it was for many cities uh, in the American South and and in the American West as well at the time. Um, What are we going to do to kind of compete uh, after World War II? And they hire this planner who comes in from New York an urban uh, guy's an urban planner named Richardson Wood, uh, and they ask him what should we do and he's he hangs out in Austin for a little while and basically comes back with this report and this report kind of guides the way that the city thinks, I think uh, about their economic growth um throughout the next few decades after that. And basically what he says it's it's pretty simply says two things. he said, uh, Austin has an advantage and uh, and it's in that it doesn't have industry. Uh, and because it, it's not kind of saddled with this industry and it's a nice place to live because of that. And two, Austin's got the university. Right. So these things together mean that what Austin should do is to follow a path that does not rely on industry um and to focus on knowledge labor. Right. Focus on creative workers, uh, white collar workers, uh, and particularly people who work in science and technology because the university was pretty strong in that for the time. It wasn't sort of on the same level as a Stanford or MIT by any means. Um, but I would say by World War II, UT was established as probably the preeminent scientific and technological university in the Southwest. I'm not, you know, I can't 100% stand by that, but it was certainly among, uh, the best there. During World War II, they had attracted a good deal of money. Um, from the federal government for research into war related activities. Uh, and the, they also had this fortuitous, the university also had a very fortuitous kind of encounter where, um, they were able to get the federal government to basically give them this old magnesium plant, uh, that had been built during World War II with federal funding, um, to, to, um, harvest, uh, magnesium and turn it, I'm not exactly sure what they used it for, but something related to the war. Uh, And after that, um, this was a pretty common practice among the federal government to give away uh, war-related materials, war-related places. So there's this big kind of, you know, factory-type thing um, about nine miles north-northwest of the campus, and all of a sudden the university gets it, right? They get it for free. And there's a a professor, a few professors, um, the most prominent uh, was named... um, J. Niels Thompson Thompson, uh, and they basically say, okay, this is a place where we can uh, bring off-campus, the campus is small, it's, it's locked uh, in the neighborhood space, was always a big concern on UT campus, I'd say it still is uh, today even, and this gives them an off-campus facility where they can really concentrate on bringing in uh, federal funding. In the 1950s with the Cold War, Um, The federal government starts uh, funding, particularly military, but all types of science and technology-related research, much more so than they had in the past. Uh, And so universities try to take advantage of this, and and UT is one of them. And this off-campus facility, which becomes known as the Balcones uh, Research Center, and today it's called the Pickle Research Center, after J.J. Pickle, the congressman from here for many years, uh, becomes the kind of central place for this by the mid 1950s. There's something like 19 science-oriented laboratories working out of there. It's, it's heavily funded, millions of dollars of federal money coming in uh, every year, and so that's a that's a pretty important um, uh, part of that. Uh, equation, right? And from that is sort of where the nascent seeds of Austin's tech industry are born. Uh, out of that, so the first of Austin's large uh, home homegrown companies, Tracor, uh, was established in the mid 1950s. Um, that was a spin-off company from uh, the Balcones facility. A few people who worked at the at the Balcones facility researchers decided, hey, we want to go into private business. Um, we have this idea that we think could, could work really well. And so they break off from there and form their own company. That's what a spin-off is. And many of Austin's early, certainly in the 1950s and 1960s, many of the early tech companies, uh, there were generated by uh, the Balconies facility and by UT, uh, more broadly, right? Um, from the city's perspective, of course, they want to, want this white collar workforce because they think it's good, um, uh, for them. And they also, think that this nice environment is something that's really key to bringing in industry without smokestacks because you know higher skilled workers particularly in the sciences are mobile right there's they they are able to uh to work in their choice of places in many ways because they're in such high uh, demand. So the key, and this is something that become a uh, thought that becomes commonplace in the 1980s or 1990s, that Austin really had it a little bit earlier, I think, than most cities, the key uh, is creating a nice quality of life for them. And so this is also where the problems come in in terms of race. Right? They assume in the 1950s that having a nice environment means being away from uh, all things that are urban, Right, so this is when you start getting uh, heavy levels of real suburban uh, single use zoning landscapes in Western Austin and in Northern Austin, especially. Uh, with these brand new kind of suburban homes that are in close proximity to uh, sites of water recreation, close proximity to uh, parks, to other outdoor activities. And to do this, or in the way that they think they need to do it, that also me- that means to kind of segregate urban uses. So all of the industry in Austin is basically pushed into East Austin, where the minorities are. And certainly, um the minor- minorities in Austin are seen as part of that kind of urban blight, that city city leaders want to keep uh, out of view. So essentially, they use, in the 1950s, um, eminent domain legislation, which basically means that the government can take uh, land away from people if they deem it unfit for use. Um, They use that, uh, and they use urban renewal, which is um, a much more complicated topic that I probably shouldn't get into too deeply. But anyway, a long story short is, is that they basically removed many of the remaining African Americans from, uh, west of Interstate 35 and moved them east of, uh, I-35. So it's just kind of like, kind of like, I, I guess, federally sanctioned, um, uh, racial cleansing, um, of some of these places. Really one of the sadder aspects of Austin's history, I would say um in this effort to uh create this um this, this kind of environment that they thought white collar workers uh would enjoy so this is where you get that idea of kind of city in a garden that there's this, there's this wholly created uh, area that's very urban, higher levels of density, um way higher levels of poverty, most of the areas um, uh, in heavy industry and other kind of dirty activities, uh, along with most of the areas racial minorities, and then that's separated from a very suburban, you know, what I would metaphorically call a garden um, uh, of white Austin west of the interstate.
0: As you said a little bit earlier, uh, it's in the in, in the context of the Austin Aqua Festival. It's in the 1970s and 1980s, however, when you have people that are beginning to push against a lot of these city plans for growth and certain aspects of this very self-consciously constructed identity of Austin. So how and why does this happen? And why does uh, Barton Springs become a particular flashpoint here?
1: Great. Right. So as in many places, really the environmental movements, what we would call modern environmental movements, emerge in the 1960s usually, um, and those are, are those are directly related to a number of different things. One would be uh, the book Silent Spring by Rachel Carson, a uh, Pittsburgher, um, who wrote this book called Silent Spring that sort of exposed the issues with the chemical industry, and it was a major bestseller. I believe it was published in 1963. It was the early 60s. Uh, I'm certain about that um at the same time you get these these people uh, are becoming cognizant of some of the environmental problems uh that are happening in the United States in the 1960s and 1970s uh in particular part of that silent spring part of it is like is things like you know spraying DDT in suburban neighborhoods part of it is uh, the is the strong increase in the use of chemicals and in many aspects of life um, part of it is uh, increased suburban growth. So suburbanization in the 1950s used up a great deal of land, uh, taking up landscapes on urban uh, peripheries, all kinds of things. Right. So by that late 1960s and 1970s, many cities, again, suburbs begin having environmental movements, and in Austin, this is no different. So you start getting these people that say they're saying, "Wait a second, right? The reason why Austin has been so successful and why it's such a nice place to live." Uh, is because of its quality of life, right? We have these water resources. We don't have a lot of um, uh, of overgrowth. We have a public, uh, sort of public spirit spirit that's always cared about our civic consciousness, I might say, that's always kind of cared about uh, our environment. And as the city begins to grow and as our leaders worry too much about growth um, and think about growth more than quality of life, those things are going to go away. Um, Roberta Crenshaw was the central figure in this. she, uh, probably deserves much more credit, uh, for modern Austin and for it, for the, for many of the nice things in modern, in modern Austin than she, uh, deserves. She, um, she at, at first just basically kind of stood up in a grassroots way to the, um, to city leaders who wanted, uh, growth, particularly around her, her big thing was around the, the Colorado River downtown. Um, they, many of the, the, uh, growth advocates or the growth machine wanted to, you know, have the city sell parks, uh, to turn them into private, um, places along the water. Uh, you know, they just, they, they, um, she basically stopped them, uh, from doing that, right? So she kind of starts this, and it's not really until the mid 19, mid late 1970s that Barton Springs, uh, become central to this. In the late 60s also, um, the students are really important to the environmental movement. There was a guy um a, a regent of the University of Texas, a very powerful uh man named Frank Irwin. Um the the main uh arena on the University of Texas campus is named after him. He's one of the more powerful regents. Um and he wanted to to actually uh uh move the, the football stadium a little bit and he called in Um, some people to basically clear out a a couple groves of trees around Waller Creek, which runs through Austin's campus. And this created a great deal of um, consternation among students and it becomes this kind of uh, catalyzing moment where a number of students as well as a number of these kind of early pioneers of environmentalism in Austin um, get together and sort of find some uh, common ground. Barton Springs again doesn't become really central to this narrative until the late seventies, and the reason for that is because uh as i would mentioned before, Austin in the sort of western part of Austin is what's considered the most beautiful parts, the rolling hills, the hill country um and the the real estate there after uh the, the rivers were or after the river was dammed and becomes much more stable um, these areas become much much more expensive uh and so realtors or real estate developers begin building out there. And Austin's got the, or Austin has this interesting, again, sort of underground world uh where most of the water that it gets now is from the Edwards aquifer, this very large underground um, uh lake basically that kind of sits underneath southwest Austin. And Barton Springs, which is a natural springs that's been sort of central to uh, many groups of people that have lived in the area for hundreds of years um, is fed by, that, is fed by uh, that aquifer, right? And Barton Springs is a place in Austin's always sort of been central to Austin's identity. It has this long history of being uh, a place for kind of civic ceremonies, um, recreation, of course, a place to cool off in the summer. If you ever lived in Austin for a long time in the summer, getting, getting into a pool in the afternoon or evening. Um... <laughs> is a is a really important part of life for a lot of people um, who live there, and so uh, what happens is is that in the we- in the western portion of the city when they start doing these big uh, housing developments as the city begins to grow and of course real real, uh, real estate developers and also people moving into Austin they want to live in these natural spaces it's very um, Similar to what I was talking about earlier in the 1950s, the suburban locations and very close proximity uh, to nature. So what happens is the construction from these places, the uh, the materials that um, that get on roads uh, and then are washed off by rain. These types of things begin to filter into the uh, aquifer. Right, and then they begin to filter into Barton Springs, so all of a sudden, in the late nineteen seventies and early nineteen eighties, Barton Springs starts to get really murky all the time, and people don't quite know what's going on uh and then they and then it's shut down right periodically in the nineteen seventies and nineteen eighties so all of a sudden, um Barton Springs becomes this place where people who have lived there for a while begin to say, "Hey." What's going on here, right? Growth is not just something that's annoying at this point. It's not just, you know, it's not just jamming up traffic and doing these other uh, kinds of things, but it's really wrecking the city, the places in the city or the parts of the city that we care about the most, right? So throughout the 1980s, uh, there's a number of different people, and Save Our Springs, uh, Save Our Springs Alliance is the central group, but a number of different kind of neighborhood groups. Come together over these issues. The environmental movement in Austin has been quite fragmented uh, in the 1970s. There's these small neighborhood groups that are concentrating mostly on uh, their neighborhoods. Um, there's this there's this uh, public planning initiative called Austin Tomorrow in the 1970s, which kind of reifies the neighborhood as the most important sort of spatial unit uh, in thinking about how to how to properly plan the city, uh, and that that sort of carries through into the late 1970s. It's Barton Springs that really creates a kind of centralized focus or a collective focus for uh, the environmental movement, and that grows throughout the 1980s. Austin explodes in the 1980s. This is when Microelectronics and Computer Corporation, which was a federal consortium of tech-related semiconductor companies, uh, chose to locate in Austin, and uh, just a ton of other defense and technology businesses located in Austin in the 1980s, and the city just grows uh, exponentially during that decade. And so the threat becomes worse uh, as the city grows, and more and more people begin sort of seeing Barton Springs as, I think you said you used the word flashpoint. It was a perfect kind of symbol of of the people who want Austin to maintain kind of quality of life and the spirit of the city versus the real estate developers and uh, business-oriented interests who just want to kind of make money uh, from Austin. So they begin seeing it as this kind of life-and-death struggle um, there between those who care about Austin and those who don't.
0: And obviously Austin is uh, still extant, a, a living city, and uh, so the story that you tell mm-hmm. has not ended yet, and you bring the story in your book right up until and into the 21st century. So can you tell us a little bit about Austin today, and how some of the issues that you described in the book, how some of them have been resolved, and how some are ongoing, and how the city is facing new problems in terms of race and environment today as well?
1: Sure. So... So in those in those 1990s, early 1990s, um, as the environment, as the kind of mainstream environmental movement is, cre- movement is cresting, uh, and with Barton Springs at its center, um, the the sort of minority environmental movement is beginning to take shape uh, as well. And this is led by a group called Podir, People in Defense of Earth and Her Resources, and it's a mostly it's mostly a group of Latinos, but it's a, a, a number of different uh, interests, mostly from the east side, and they look at the environment a little bit differently, where the sort of central motif of the mainstream environmentalists in Barton Springs is, is that we want to protect Barton Springs because it sort of shows what we are, because it's a recreational site that we want to use, and we're fighting against developers. Um, environmentalists on the east side basically more saw themselves as part of the environment. They saw their neighborhoods as part of the environment. They saw their communities as part of the environment. Um, they certainly enjoyed their parks and their open spaces, but they thought that their actual lived communities, like their day to day lives, were, um, part of the environment as well. And so they kind of theorized the environment in this way and they look at the environment a little bit differently. The, the, the sort of issue that codified them was, um, uh, these gas tank farms. So I didn't know this until I read the book, but there are these, bi- these places basically where gas companies store gas in these huge tanks. They almost look like water towers, uh, kind of. And in the early 1990s, well, they had been located in East Austin, sometimes in very close proximity uh, to neighborhoods and to people's homes um, for a long time since the 1950s. And they basically, the, the early um, east side environmentalists uncovered this, and they, they basically say to the to city to the, uh elites like, look, this isn't okay. They get it they they publicize this, they they went door to door and basically did a study of people who were getting sick uh in the neighborhoods who live by them, all kinds of other uh problems, and they get the city to uh remove them. So this huge victory. Um they spent a lot of time concentrating on uh the hazards of the high tech industry, which were also tended to be located, um the the manufacturing facilities tended to be located in East Austin, where they're kind of more research oriented or think think type places. Were located more uh, in West Austin. They concentrated a great deal on the problems uh, associated um, with those things. So, in the 1990s, you have an, and sometimes these two environmental movements sort of came together, uh, but sometimes they really didn't. They had sort of separate um, uh, separate emphases uh, in a way. <coughs> So, but in the 1990s, they both won a lot of victories. So, um, SOS wins in 1991, uh, basically, basically saying that, basically creating uh, legislation where they they are going to curtail uh, a good deal of the development and highly kind of restrict a good deal of that development in West Austin, um, uh, Poder and the East Siders. As I say, win a few battles, get these gas tanks removed, uh, and kind of put some checks on the the pollution generated by uh, the tech industry, and then the 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 place where they where they kind of fall apart though, and this is this is the interesting thing I think for the modern era or for the the twenty first century is that in nineteen ninety seven um, the Green Council, what's colloquially known as the Green Council, wins in Austin with uh, with Kirk Watson as the mayor, and so all all the all the um, council members on Austin City Council have some kind of relationship to the environmental movement. Um, And what they do is they set out to figure out a plan where environmentalists and developers can both kind of be happy together. And that plan is, they basically say, okay, what we're going to do is we're going to cut off development in these sensitive areas over uh, the aquifer on the west side of Austin. But what we're going to do is we're going to incentivize new development taking place in the downtown. Like many cities in the post-war era, and focusing on suburbanization and, and most of the resources going into building these new suburban uh, developments, the central city kind of lags behind. Excuse me. And in Austin, um, this was the case as well. So basically, this, the city says, look, Kirk Watson especially says, look, what we're going to do is we're going to pour a bunch of money into the downtown area, and we're going to give you guys a bunch of tax breaks and other subsidies if you move your investment uh, into the city. They create a map. Of Austin, which, which um, is called the De- the desired developmental zone, um, and that's all in downtown Austin. And what they do is they basically they basically say they buy up a bunch of land in western Austin on the periphery, and say you can't. We're not going to develop on this. This is going to make this is going to be undeveloped. Right. So this is something that works, uh, and, and a lot of people in Austin, I think, were, were interested in this, in this new kind of urban uh, living uh, sort of paradigm. Right, So this kind of works, and it's celebrated as this big victory after you know 20 years, the environmentalists and developers finally figure it out, um, where each one sort of gets what they want. The problem with that is, is that the development that took place downtown uh, certainly spilled over into the east side. Right. So what happens is is that all of a sudden now you have these incentives, and you also have a lot of very nicely priced, very cheap uh, land in East Austin. And the city looks at the developers and say, says, okay, there's, I can make a great deal of profit if I can redevelop this and, and maybe market it to middle-class, if I can buy it cheap, redevelop it, and market it to middle-class people. And the city uh, has the same kind of idea. that Austin is a city that's always on the lookout for uh, local property tax, basically, because so much of their... Their relatively uh, expensive and valuable land can't be taxed. Like the whole University of Texas campus, all of the government buildings just south of there, and the state capital—that's really prime real estate for Austin uh, from a tax perspective. But it can never be taxed because those entities are uh, part of the state, so they don't get to get—they don't get to receive any property tax uh, from those places. So the city was really on the lookout for increasing. Uh, the value of places where it could generate property tax from. So, um, very, very quickly, and really within a few years after that, we start seeing signs of gentrification, uh, new urbanist developments going up, higher priced condominiums going up, um, uh, uh, all sorts of other like boutique, uh, shops that are meant to draw in, uh, mostly white middle class clientele going up. And what you start seeing is demographically, Uh, by 2000, certainly, but, and by 2010, it just becomes intense, uh, is that those areas have undergone rapid, rapid change, a demographic change characteristic of gentrification. So they've become much less African American and Latino and much more, uh, white and significantly younger and wealthier. Uh, than they were before. Um, even though I'm done with this project, I'm very, very uh, interested in seeing what the 2020 census is going to say. My guess is it's going to say that he, that some of the neighborhoods in East Austin are some of the most heavily, uh, gentrified over the last decade, uh, of any neighborhoods in there, of any zip codes, I would guess, in the entire country. Um, I've been back recently a few times. I did, went and did some research for my next book project, um, just this past summer, and it's, it's just incredible. Uh, it doesn't even look like the same city since the last time I was there, which was about uh, three years previous to that. So, um, and, and from a demographic perspective, we'll see this as well. Austin now has this very kind of inverted geography where, uh, the majority, um, there's a, there's a, a higher percentage of African Americans living in suburbs uh, of Austin than there are living in the city. Uh, And you're you're also starting to see um, a great deal of uh, Mexican-Americans and other Latinos being kind of pushed out of those central neighborhoods um, into more uh, peripheral locations. So it's this kind of um, really, uh, I think, sad ending to the book, but the the the, the book kind of explains it as well. And that's that as neighborhoods become more valuable, as people begin to see these neighborhoods as more valuable, um, they also begin to, to price out. Um, minorities who have lived there and in many cases were forced to live there for you know, generations previous to that. So, um, it's certainly something that, uh, that urban planning, um, has to, to be, uh, ready to address in the future.
0: My last question is, it's always kind of a a toughie to ask of my guests, but I'm always curious if there's one takeaway of this, you know, large and complicated book and the story that you tell, but if there's one takeaway that you hope readers come away from this book with, what would it be?
1: Oh, that's a tough question. Um, I think that what I'd want want them to take away from the book is that when we look at Austin or when we look at cities and we say they're sustainable, right, that that always has – that 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 has many different meanings uh and that that term is not stable that many different people feel differently about what that means um and while austin is is very much lauded for its environment for its for its being able to maintain a kind of environmental um uh feeling uh for uh, an environmental culture i would say there too and also a very nice environmental and sustainable infrastructure Um, that it has not been very sustainable for its minority minority residents. Um, And so when we look at sustainability, like I I consider this book hopefully to be um, something of a history of sustainability in a case study, a history of urban sustainability in a case study. Uh, And I think that um, when we look at sustainability, we have to kind of question whether or not it's truly sustainable across racial and class uh, divides.
0: Your critique of sustainability reminded me a little bit of Andrew Hurley's great book about Gary, Indiana, environmental inequalities, and how he talks kind of in a similar way about this urban setting and about how environmentalism fractures along these kind of racialized lines as well. I really appreciated that critique. I thought it was very well done.
1: That's, uh, that's very flattering because that's a great book. Uh, just to be mentioned in the same sentence is, uh, is really an um, uh, honor.
0: Um, you mentioned a set. You were back in Austin recently uh, doing research for your next project. Could we get a bit of a preview of what that is? What the the next thing coming down the pike for you might be?
1: Sure. My next project is kind of taking up. I think I mentioned to you that the uh, that my dissertation was kind of a political economic emphasis in Austin. Um, what I'm doing now in the book it's tentatively titled. I'm, I'm kind of just beginning uh, to get to get back into it. I guess is it probably won't be published for a few years. Um, but uh, but um, the tentative title is The Myth of the Markets, Texas and um, the Paradox of Neoliberalism. And essentially what this book is, is, is it's a book about Texas's kind of aspects of Texas economic history uh, from World War II till roughly the 1990s, year 2000. And my basic argument is that Texas is often held up as this kind of paradigm of small government, free enterprise uh, success. And what I found over the years in studying Austin and, and in studying other places in Texas, I worked in Dallas for a year uh, before this, so I I, um, I was there as well. And I'm going to incorporate that into the book. What I found was that uh, really that's a myth. It actually, uh, the Texas economy has been driven very much by private-public partnerships and by a really strong uh, sense of government within the economy. So I'm going to try to break that that kind of free market myth uh, mythos about what's made Texas such an economic powerhouse. Um, uh, so that's yeah, that's, that, that's the, the kind of essence of
0: uh, what I'm working on now. All right. Well, I will keep my eye out for it somewhere down the line. Cool. And, Andrew M. Bush is an assistant professor of interdisciplinary studies in the Honors College at Coastal Carolina University. His book, City in a Garden, came out just last year with the University of North Carolina Press. Andrew, thanks again for coming on the show.
1: Thanks so much, Steve. It was great uh, chatting with you.